are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7000. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Had to think there for a second. Monday, Tuesday, still early in the week. Still so many days away from Auburn's massive clash with Penn State and Happy Valley on Saturday. Hope everybody has had a great start to their work week. Lance, how's your start been? It's been fantastic, Noah, but like you mentioned there, I just want it, I just want the weekend to go ahead and come on because we've got a huge matchup with Penn State. I've been looking forward to this since the day that they announced that it was going to happen just a couple of years ago. So yeah, just waiting for the weekend to come on, and it's not necessarily working for the weekend uh, just to kind of sit down and relax, but that's easily my most, it's the busiest day of the week for me, but I'm just excited for it to actually come. That's a great song, Working for the Weekend. It, it Lover is. Boy. Yeah. Great song. They have some good songs. Now that may... You know, that may not be some folks' cup of tea out there. I thought they had some good songs back in the day. But number to call, 334-321-1390. Our text line is 334-564-1840. That's how you can reach us for today's edition of On the Line. Whatever is on your mind, we want to hear from you. We're going to start off today's show analyzing Auburn's quarterback performance through the first two weeks and then taking it a step further and projecting it out for this weekend's matchup against Penn State. Of course, we've seen some good performances from Bo Nix up to this point, but I think the question on everybody's lips going into this weekend's matchup is how will Bo Nix perform on the road against a ranked team when you look at his game splits it's not just when Bo Nix is on the road he struggles it's also when Bo Nix is playing a good football team he struggles when they're ranked whether they've got a winning record he tends to have worse performances against better teams which makes sense most quarterbacks would have a a worse performance against better opposition But for Bo Nix, it has been night and day differences in terms of his performances against good and bad teams. It's been bad against the good, and it's been good against the bad. So everybody's confidence level is probably on different different tiers going into this weekend, and I'll be interested to get your take on that. But before we get to that point, analyze Bo Nix's performance for me through these first two weeks. What are your impressions of what we've seen out of the junior signal caller in 2021. Well, you when you look at just the statistics alone, it's 303 or 383 passing yards, five touchdowns, no interceptions, 20 of 22 in his first game, nine of 17 in his second. Again, no interceptions, only one turnover. Had a fumble late in the second quarter against Alabama State. Those are the stats alone, but if you start to dig into the first and second games, you start to watch some of the film, you you begin to realize, like like we talked about on yesterday's show, some of the incompletions that Nick's had were not necessarily his fault. It was the receiver's fault, or it was pass interference on a a, uh, ball that would have been caught had the defensive back not been pulling on the receiver. We saw that on a deep ball to Shed Jackson against Alabama State. But you talk about Bo Nix and how he struggled against really good competition. And I know that Auburn's strength of schedule, according to ESPN, is literally 130th right now, dead last. Auburn has played two terrible opponents 
through week one. But Nix's accuracy and his decision-making through these first two weeks has been phenomenal, specifically in that Akron game week one, 20 of 22. He made all the right decisions. He never got flustered, partially because the offensive line was doing a good job blocking that Akron front. So, yeah, when you look at Nix across the board, the statistics are good, and you go and watch the film, and he just has not made a lot of mistakes. Now, the question is, like you mentioned, how is he going to perform against a better opponent on the road in such a tough environment with this new scheme and the uh, the, the talk about all this efficiency and how, how much better this, this is for Bo Nix and how much more comfortable he is, all Twitter jokes aside. I think you're going to see a better version of him on the road. But through these first two weeks of the season – I think we've seen improvements in areas that Auburn fans have been concerned uh, concerned about. Some bullet points that I've got on Bo Nix after these first two weeks. I think he's been decisive. That's a word that I've tried to highlight a lot about his play after these first two games, which, granted, he should be decisive against Alabama State and Akron, but according to Pro Football Focus, he has a 2.51 seconds for time to throw. That's right in the wheelhouse where you want it to be at. Once a play develops and you look at quarterback efficiency, quarterback efficiency goes down the longer that a quarterback holds on to the football. Now, that may be great that he's got all the time in the world to throw the football, but still, that could also mean routes get played out, routes get ran, and then the opposing team did a great job in coverage. So that's going to drive quarterback efficiency down, right? It's a great sign that Bo Nix is getting the football out of his hands quickly. Now, is that a factor of the scheme? Is that a factor because he has truly improved and he's making quick decisions? I think it's a little bit of both. You go back to the Akron game, you think about the touchdown pass that he threw to Kobe Hudson in the slot. He looks left, quickly notices that that play is covered up moves to his right notices that the underneath route is covered up and then he moves quickly to the slot and all of that took place in the span of two three seconds right probably 2.5 seconds that's the average time to throw for the for Bo Nix through these first two weeks I've been impressed I think he's been decisive he's been distributing the football quickly on the other hand it probably is a little bit to do with the new scheme you see some of these flood routes that they like to to throw so often namely that Akron game you look at how John Samuel Shanker was getting the football, rolling Bo Nix out to his right, quick throw down low. Those are the types of plays where you don't have to make difficult decisions, so it's easy to get the ball out quickly. Some slant routes early on against Alabama State. His receivers have been wide open. So part of it's been level of competition. Part of it's been the scheme. Part of it also is I think he truly has improved, and he is being decisive and getting the ball out of his hands quickly. Yeah, and he's not he's not had a whole lot – of opposition right he's not had a whole lot of pressure on him during these first two games when you look at his uh I guess you would call it just his his passer chart like where the the heat map of where he's throwing on the field he's only had two uh throws that he's uh put between the hashes everything else has been outside the hashes one was that 42 yard completion to shed jackson and then one was a uh incompletion it was that drop on the slant to shed uh at the beginning of the alabama state game everything else has been working outside the hashes so that was a question that i had about bo nicks is how is his downfield accuracy going to improve outside the hashes and he's been able to do that he had a completion uh to meet to Demetrius Robertson obviously and, and that touchdown he had the uh the completion to Javaris Johnson that was also a touchdown he uh he had that like you mentioned the the throw to Kobe Hudson down the seam and then again uh the uh, the throw to uh shed that deep ball so yeah it's I think it's part of the scheme his efficiency so far this season 
and uh, his ability to just make the right decisions and be decisive. And I think that moving into this Penn State game, you know, something that was talked about with Bo Nix is he's got he's got a lot of different options. Like you mentioned, that uh, Kobe Hudson throw was probably his th- it was his third read on the play that seam that seam throw. So if Auburn does find themselves in a situation where Nix does actually have pressure. I think Nix is still going to be able to make the right decision and go to the guy that he needs to because those options and those checkdowns and things are actually there. I think he's been super accurate on deep balls. That's another plus. We talked about that earlier yesterday. I think that the the ability for him to locate his receivers downfield, make quick decisions, not hold the ball for too long. I think in the past you've seen Bo Nix kind of load up a little bit, kind of hesitate on some of his deep ball throws kind of looking like almost that he's tried to it's, it's like he's tried too hard to place it right and then he ends up overshooting his guy he's not only been decisive on the routes underneath and the routes in the intermediate game he's been decisive on the deep ball and it doesn't look like he's thinking too hard it looks like he's playing yeah and then I'll also say you know something that was a factor last year that we thought was not going to be a factor this season and it's definitely not been through two games is his running ability a lot of less a lot less scrambling uh, a lot less design uh, runs for Bo Nix I wonder if that's going to be a factor in this Penn State game with their pass rush if they're going to be actually actually be able to get to Nix and they're going to force him out of the pocket and force him to use his legs a little bit but it's something that's a part of his game that I think Auburn definitely does need to utilize every now and then because he's athletic he's able to actually get out of the pocket and pick up a first down so while his accuracy and his throwing has been good I'd like to see Auburn whenever they need to use his legs because I do believe it's a threat his receivers haven't helped him out too much I think going through some other pro football focused statistics that they've got on him 30.8 percent of Bo Nix's tosses against Alabama State dropped four drops from receivers yeah, and, and so it's something that we were concerned about last year, right, with Seth Williams about how Knicks was forcing it to receivers and it was putting the guys in some really bad spots. The, through these two first two games, it feels like Knicks is putting the ball where it needs to be and he's making the right decision. And if anything, these young and experienced receivers are the ones that are causing the issues, like you just mentioned, Shed Jackson dropping a couple of passes. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's something that definitely needs to be worked on outside of Knicks but it's I think it's similar to the situation with Bryce Young and I'm not saying Knicks is on the level of what's going on in Alabama I'm not I'm not making a comment on that I'm just saying that Saban views Bryce Young in such a positive light that whenever you go back and watch it seems like Young is making all of the right decisions it's just these receivers in this offensive line is not helping him out it seems like through two games talk about not being the trailer being the truck Nix has been the truck and if anything says his receivers have occasionally been the ones to hold him back I'll say this I need to amend that real quick I don't know if I clarified this but drop percentage in the Alabama State game drop percentage on targeted throws so throws that Bo Nix did not miss ones that he had on target it was 31 percent from Auburn's receivers against Alabama State that's not for the whole season the whole season it's 14.7 percent you put that in comparison to the guy that you just mentioned, Bryce Young, the drop percentage for him at Alabama, 6.1%. Right. So, so there almost you go. 10% right there. You know, I mean, that's that's a sizable difference. And just to try and put that in comparison to a really good receiving core, Auburn's receiving core, definitely a step below that through this first little bit. But that's not the dog Auburn's receiving core. I think that they've certainly impressed through the first two weeks as well. Of course, I think Bo Nix has been limiting mistakes also. Really, hardly any turnover-worthy plays. We didn't see any in the Akron game. We saw a couple in the Alabama State game. You hope that that doesn't rear its head this weekend. 
No, and look, we've no, we know the struggles that Nix has had on the road up until this point, right? Throughout his entire career, he's just not been a great quarterback in in a really tough road environment, and that's a concern for this weekend. When you go up to Happy Valley, over a hundred thousand people, it's going to be a whiteout. It's going to be fierce. But we actually got a text about half an hour to forty five minutes ago that was asking. How does playing in the swamp as a true freshman benefit Bo Nix as a junior this weekend? They said, I think that will help him. I'm not sure Bo will be as affected as much as many as much as people think right because he's been in this road environment before he's been to Bryant Denny Stadium he's been to College Station he's been to the swamp he's been to Baton Rouge he's been in these really tough environments and while he's not looked fantastic I think he's had his moments and Coming into his junior year, again, talking about how much more efficient this offense is, talking about how he seems like he's making better decisions, I think we're going to see a better version of Bo Nix that does not get as rattled as he has in the past. Of course, the crowd noise, that's going to affect you pre-snap. That's going to affect your communication with your offensive linemen and your other skill position players. Everybody's going to have to be at a heightened sense of communication and awareness in the pre-snap. I think, though, the crowd noise can affect and can rattle some players if it continues into the play of course not saying that of course the crowd noise continues into the play but I'm saying if pre-snap getting you know the communication issues if that if that doesn't get sorted out and if a quarterback gets rattled in those types of environments obviously that's going to continue into their play in the actual run of, run of the game and actual run of play not just pre-snap as well it's going to be very key getting Bo Nicks into our rhythm early so that brings my question to you Zalmer come out and try and establish the run quickly or do you think maybe a similar type of game plan to what we saw against Akron where there are some quick passes out into the flats, get your tight ends involved early, John Samuel Shanker some of those flood routes underneath for him, or maybe get the running backs involved. Do you see them getting the football out of Bo Nix's hand quickly early to establish a rhythm with him to try and, you know, get him acclimated to the environment and throw in the ball? I think Auburn definitely has options in this game early, right? You can try and establish yourself, like you said, through the passing game. Get some of these short and intermediate routes working. Get it to the tight end. Just get him comfortable throwing the ball in this in, in this environment. And that's high risk, high reward. Right. Because if it doesn't work, then now you have ran the risk that your quarterback is rattled for the rest of the ball game. Right. Or you could ease him in. Right. On the other side, you've got one of the best running backs in the entire country and a freshman that has looked fantastic through two weeks. You could try and rely on them early, try and establish the ground game, and then work the pass off of that and then try and start hitting some of these longer throws. Again, like you mentioned, we've not seen Auburn really attack downfield often through these first two games. I'm interested to see how much Auburn pulls out of the bag. Do they go to Demetrius Robertson on a deep route? Do they try Malcolm Johnson Jr. again? Do they think that they have that in this arsenal against a really good Penn State defense? I think, as a fan, it's more comfortable to see Auburn try and establish that ground game first and then work the pass off of it because, like you said, it's very high-risk, high-reward to try and get the ball out of Nix's hands early. There's also a risk associated with that, though. If you have a difficult time hitting those shot plays off of the running game, you risk becoming one-dimensional early on, right. and then you get caught in that type of 23-16 nasty game that we've seen so many times from a Bo Nix on the road against a Penn State or a Florida or an LSU right where all Auburn has been able to rely on is the rushing attack but we've seen that that's clearly not enough you notice through these first two games whenever Auburn gets an opportunity how aggressive Brian Harson is after creating a turnover getting a big stop 
whenever they get good field position, how aggressive he's been in taking second that down shot. and one. Right. It's 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 been it's been oh we've got an opportunity to take a shot. We're going to take the shot. I'm interested to see how often Auburn does that. Right. If they get if Penn State gets the ball early, Auburn gets a stop. Are they going to the air immediately? Are they trying to hit that bomb play? They've put so much on tape with that that I'm interested to see how Auburn works off of that. We talked about the reverse. Have we've seen that twice now? Is Auburn going to work that? in? is that a little wrinkle that we're going to see? Told you that play was going to be ran again. Exactly. And we saw John Samuel Schenker get a fantastic block on the edge to make sure that Robertson got that touchdown last week. I'm interested to see if they use Robertson. Out of the entire receiving core, I think a question that I have coming into this game is does Auburn rely on somebody like Robertson a lot or do they just try and spread it out and make Penn State guess? I think they're going to try and just like you mentioned, get it to a tight end, get it to uh, uh, get it to Jackson, get it to Kobe Hudson, get it to Demetrius Robertson, try and spread it out and make Penn State think and work Bo Nix into this game. But I will say, if you're asking me how is this offensive game plan going to work early, I think they're going to try and establish tank. Go back and watch the Penn State-Wisconsin game. Penn State could not hit their deep balls in the first half. They hit their deep balls in the second half, and that's why they won. They were unable to hit their deep balls in the first half because they couldn't protect Clifford. They couldn't give him enough time to be able to get the ball out of his hands and to allow Jahan Dotson to be able to get down the field and get open. So there are some concerns for that for Auburn, at least for me, because we haven't seen Auburn's offensive line have to hold up against a good pass rush, which I think Penn State does present certain issues up front, especially from what we saw in that Wisconsin game. I thought Penn State did a fairly good job of getting into the backfield against Graham Mertz. You're going to know very quickly about how this game's going to go. After those first couple of shot plays that Brian Harson tries, you're going to know about how this game's going to go. If Auburn misses on them, well, you're like, all right, we're in for a ride here. It's going to be defensive. You're looking at like 26-21, 23-16. It could go either way at that point. But if Auburn's hitting its deep balls early, now all of a sudden Penn State has to respect that element of Auburn's game. And I expect Penn State to come in, to bring players into the box, to try and stop the run. They are going to have to, Auburn's going to have to earn the respect of Penn State from a passing game standpoint. Penn State's going to come after the run. Auburn's got to earn their respect in the passing game for them to back off the rushing attack. And if Auburn's going to be able to open up the passing game, they have to rely on Knicks not freaking out on the road like he has in the past. And pass protection. That's yes. a big part of that. Because you think about it, has he really had pass protection in some of these road environments? No. <laughs> no, he hasn't. That's right. And then you, you rewind a couple of years ago, back when he was a freshman, a, he was a freshman, and maybe he had some pass protection in some of those ball games, but it still wasn't great. You were still playing against some pretty good defensive lines back then. Florida LSU had good defensive lines back then. They were getting after the quarterback. So back then, I thought Auburn's offensive line was fine in 2019, but the best defensive lines were still able to get after Bo Nix and get after him in the backfield. So that's going to be crucial against Penn State is pass protection and we'll talk about that later on in the show we'll have questions for Justin Ferguson of the Auburn Observer as he shows up at 2 30 p.m. for our weekly interview on Tuesday when we come back we are going to rank Bo Nix's performance with the other six starting quarterbacks in the SEC West where does Bo Nix stack up with those guys we'll be back in just a moment Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central, Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. We're taking your calls here on this Tuesday afternoon. Text line as well if you're on the go, 334-564-1840. Find us on Twitter, at Point Gardner, at Dahl Pound. 
our previous segment there we were recapping Bo Nix's performances through the first two weeks analyzing them breaking them down what have we seen from watching him on film and how can that project out to this weekend's game against Penn State now I want to compare him to the other SEC West quarterbacks just the other quarterbacks in his divisions don't go across the whole conference let's take a look at how he shapes up with the other guys in his division here in the SEC West and we have put together rankings for you and so let's start it off Lance who do you have as the least effective quarterback at this point? Number seven in the SEC West. I think it's got to be the tandem between Haynes King and Zach Calzada. I've got them at That's number seven. That's an easy answer. Yeah. You look at uh, Zach Calzada's uh, numbers throughout two games, 183 uh, passing yards, one touchdown, one interception. Haynes King has not looked fantastic through. I've got them combined right here do you have them added up or I have the I have the I don't have the numbers combined just I got separate. them combined okay we got 54.1 completion percentage 483 passing yards three touchdowns four picks they have gotten a little bit of success on the ground 64 yards 4.6 yards per carry and again that's just the turnovers and yep. especially throwing three interceptions against against Kent State for Haynes King and I know he's going to be out for the next few weeks but I do not trust calzada to get it done after seeing what he get, did against a not not a very good colorado team it's an interception every 18 and a half pass attempts for these two guys now that's a statistic that i've been running with with haynes king considering he had 36 pass attempts and three picks in his career four picks in his career up to that point not a good look for the guy and it continued into this year and now calzada comes in he looked extremely uncomfortable against colorado colorado is not a very good football team but there is still some room to improve there for this group haynes king is going to be out four to seven weeks according to texas a&m and then calzada they say they're comfortable with him. it's hard for a quarterback to come in as a backup on the road in a hostile environment they're going to be able to work with them now throughout the full week they get a scrub game against new mexico this week and then next week is the big one against arkansas so that's where you truly can't gauge the trajectory of this A&M football team is what happens to that Arkansas game and how does that offense look even if A&M loses that ball game if they're competitive I still think you could say okay this is a seven win team but right now A&M is trending in the wrong direction and it has to do with quarterback play let's move on to six who do you have I have KJ Jefferson of Arkansas that's where I have him as well one touchdown two interceptions over the course of the season so far 65 percent completion percentage 266 yards has the second worst uh, passer rating of every single SEC West quarterback that has gotten to play so far just above Zach Calzada he's not been entirely effective now his legs have been a threat and we got to see that against Texas but 8.5 yards per carry he's not been the best passer he kind of he's kind of like Joe Milton in the fact that it's the fastball every single throw he's going to need to learn to continue to put touch on balls as the season goes on well eventually opposing defenses are going to key into the things that Arkansas is doing on offense because tendencies will arise it is only two weeks in his rushing ability and what Arkansas did in that Texas game that can catch a Texas off guard but in two weeks will it catch the Texas A&M defense off guard that I don't know about I think you could be looking at a very low scoring Texas A&M Arkansas game which is not the trend between those two teams when they beat you're typically looking at something that's at least getting into the 30s I think it's going to be a fun ball game but I think you're looking at a little bit more of a defensive affair moving on to five this is where I have Max Johnson of LSU that's where you got man we may have the same list yeah, Max Johnson of LSU, 44 of 73 so far. That's a 60%, 60.3% completion percentage, 491 yards, six touchdowns, one interception. 
averaging 6.7 yards per attempt. Yeah, he's not been he the, the stats are like, "Oh, well that's not a terrible quarterback, but he did not look fantastic like blow you away against McNeese and he didn't look good against uh UCLA." So, I've got him at 5th because you look at the four other quarterbacks in this in this SEC West division and I just think they've they've played similar to better competition they've had similar to better numbers it's the same thing that you got out of miles brennan last year before he got hurt they're obviously going to throw a lot of touchdowns that's the lsu offense they'll put you five wide inside the five yard line lsu's trying to throw the ball all the time so the touchdowns are going to be there but what's not good is the fact that these guys aren't overly efficient they're just not completing a high percentage of their passes you talk about them throwing the football around yes second most attempts out of any sec west quarterback so far for max johnson Moving on to four, this is where I have Bo Nix. Okay, I have Will Rogers here. The reason that I have Will Rogers here is, again, those attempts. I think if you give Nix as many attempts as Rogers, he'd have just as good of numbers, if not better. So you have Bo at three? I have Bo at three, yes. Well, then let's talk about this for a second. I like Will Rogers a lot at this point. He's played a little bit better competition than Bo has, of course. He's played against NC State, Louisiana Tech. It's better than Akron and Alabama State. That's pretty much the main reason why I've put Rogers in front of Bo Nix at this point but the statistics look great too 75 percent completion percentage 664 passing yards five TDs one pick he's done it against better competition that's pretty much the only reason why I've ranked him ahead of Bo at this point do I think Bo possesses better arm talent than Will Rogers 100 percent you go and watch Will Rogers film Mississippi State is going to have a hard time stretching the field against teams and when you look at the Mississippi State scoreboard this past week they only scored 17 points on offense they scored 24 total because of a kick return as Mississippi State gets into the rest of this season SEC defenses are going to be able to still limit them to 17 and if they could just find 20 points they're going to win how NC State didn't do that I do not know I thought NC State was a much better football team than what we saw on Saturday give a lot of credit to the Mississippi State defense but Will Rogers has looked good he's protected the football pretty well he's throwing the ball around the yard once again those numbers are going to look great because of the nature of the offense but I'll also give him some credit he did it against some good football teams yeah and it, it, like you said He's going to look good because of that system. Again, I think, Nick's. if you give him that amount of throws, he's going to come out and be efficient because you look at his passer rating right now, it's currently number one in the SEC. Now, after this week, do I think Bo Nix moves up in my rankings? Yes, I think so. Okay. Because he's going to beat quality competition. I'll go ahead and give people a sneak peek. I think Auburn wins on Saturday. I, I, I agree. And I think Bo Nix looks better. Top two guys, we'll get to those later on. It's between Bryce Young and Matt Corral. I'm interested to see how you rank those guys out because I think one quarterback's better than the other, but I also think the other guys perform better through the first two weeks. So some other things to shake out here on our quarterback rankings in the SEC West. Bo Nix come again at four for me, come again at three for you, Lance. Justin Ferguson of Auburn Observer on the other side of this break. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Headed to the phone lines now. We got Justin Ferguson of the Auburn Observer on the line with us here for our Tuesday edition of the show. Justin, how you doing today, my man? I'm all right. How are you? Doing great. I know you got to be looking forward to a trip up to Happy Valley. I want to know before we get into it, what's on the itinerary, my man? I'm sure you're excited to be making this trip. Yeah, no real plans right now other than the fact that I fly into Philly on Friday and get get to stake out sometime Friday night, and then we're gonna we're gonna see what what uh what happens. I'm 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 interested to see the whole experience. I know the Whiteout's one of the most famous uh, games in all of college football year in and year out. I think it's pretty cool that Auburn's getting to be that one this year for Penn State, and so I'm looking forward to it. 
based on what we've seen these first two weeks, what's your confidence level in Bo Nix being able to go into Happy Valley and showing that this really is the year that he's having fun and that he's improved? Yeah, I think I think the big thing for him is just going to be good decision making, right? And 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 having a knowledge and an understanding of this new offense that when things break down, because they are going to break down in a tough environment away from home, there are going to be difficulties. There are going to be communication issues and stuff like that that he knows how where to go with the ball and he knows how to make right decisions he doesn't panic that he doesn't uh you know struggle um with some of the things he struggled in in the past against uh really good teams away from home and so the first couple of games we've seen from Bo Nix we've seen a guy uh look very confident with the ball in his hands where to go with it um it hasn't been perfect there were a couple of uh there were a couple of plays in the in the first half of the Alabama State game uh that he probably wishes he could have had back uh, but for the most part, he's done a really good job of of being decisive and uh, showing a understanding of this offense and 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 showing that okay, uh, he can be prepared for whatever uh, a defense throws at him. Um, you know, and that's going to be a big thing this week because they need him to play well in order to have a chance to win this game. And uh, he does not have a ton of uh, of success away from home against against big opponents. Um, so I think this is a good opportunity for him to show that. This is a new year. It's a new staff. It's a new uh, offense. It's a new everything. Uh, so take advantage of, of, of that new opportunity. Of course, another particular concern that people are going to have going into this game, something that's very closely re- related to Bo Nix's success, is how Auburn's pass protection is going to hold up against Penn State's pass rush. How do you expect this matchup to go on Saturday? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think this is going to be an interesting game at the line of scrimmage for both teams. I think this is a uh, these are two teams that are pretty similar. Uh, I think uh, both both teams have offensive lines that have struggled in pass protection in the last couple of years. Um, I think Auburn's done a better job early in this season, but a lot of that might have to do with who they played compared to Penn State. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's it's got to be it's got to be important for this offensive line to over communicate. Um, to do everything they need to do to keep Bo Nix up, right? Because if he's got time, he's showing like that quick decision making and 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 you know the decisiveness in the offense that he can move the ball uh, with it with this uh, in this scheme. You know, it might not be the guy who's going to come out and throw for 300 yards, but he's going to do a good job managing the game well if you give him the time and the opportunity. And so, I think for Auburn, the key there on defense is going to be doing the same thing. Sean Clifford, um, you know. It, is a quarterback like Nix who's had his ups and downs, and when he gets under pressure, he's had a tendency to make some big mistakes. And, um, you know, that Penn State offensive line has had some issues holding up in pass protection this season. So I think it's going to be big. I mean, whichever whichever offensive line in this game does a better job of protecting their quarterback and, and, and finding a way to get just some momentum going on the ground against two really good defensive fronts, um, you know, I think that's going to be the team that will, that will have the best chance to win. You talk about the ground game obviously being a, uh, the most important thing for both of these offenses, but you look at Auburn through these first two games defensively, and they've kind of held everything in front of them, but they're allowing these opposing quarterbacks to complete 77% of their passes. Is that a concern for you to maybe see Penn State kind of work the field in these intermediate mesh routes, and that's the way that they would try and work their way down the field in third down and medium and third down and long, or do you think Auburn's going to be able to, to hold them in the passing game because this pass rush is going to get home? Yeah, I think it's very important to think that, yeah, even though Auburn has allowed 77% of, 
uh, the passes, you got to look at what what the passes are. Uh, and according to places like Pro Football Focus, uh, all three quarterbacks that have faced Auburn for an extended amount of time in these first couple of games have an average depth of target of less than five yards. And so it's a lot of short stuff. And that's a lot of stuff that Penn State's going to want to do too. Um, you know, this is a this is an offense that does a lot of stuff like Chandler Wooten said today, uh, does a lot of formations to the boundary. Uh, they do a lot of quick game. They do a lot of screens. Uh, and they try to get their guys out, out in space like that. So the big thing is, is that, you know, a completion percentage for an opposing quarterback can be high. But as long as the yards per attempt are low and you're not giving up big plays, that's that's key. I mean, if you've seen Penn State play this season, uh, if you go back to the Wisconsin game, the only real um, good good moments they had on the offensive side of the ball in that week one game is when they were able to get open deep uh, and, and throw the ball to guys like Jahan Dotson. Um, so I think for Auburn, it's just that that mentality, of keeping everything in front of you, um, is very is very strong. Um, you know, it, it, you think that if a team like Penn State is going to try to nickel and dime you to death. Um, you feel like that you were going to have the sound tacklers and, and be disruptive enough in space to make it happen. So um, if, if Auburn can keep everything in front of them, then Penn State might get a little greedy as the game goes on, and that's when you try to get that pass rush to open up and get after it. So, yeah, I mean, the, the secondary knows that they've they've got to play better. I mean, everybody you've talked to in the first couple of games said, yeah, we can tighten it up. Like, we're, we're, we're pleased in the fact that we're barely allowing anything through the air, but yeah, we know we can be better, and they're going to have to be better against Penn State. But I think the nature of this defense, playing back, sitting back, and keeping everything in front of you, is going to be effective. Um, you know, if, if if it prevents the big play, because that's the that's the the mo. If Auburn uh, can force Penn State to try to have to throw it down deep downfield a few times, um, and they do a good job of covering that. Uh, they can open things up for uh, for that pass rush to get after Clifford. Speaking with Justin Ferguson of the Auburn Observer here on the Tuesday edition of On the Line. Justin, what similarities and differences do you expect to see from a play-calling perspective as the Tigers now play their first legitimate op- opponent of the season? We kind of don't really know what to expect, I feel like. Yeah, I think the first couple of games, Auburn's really established that they're going to use a lot of different formations. They're going to use a lot of different personnel packages. They're going to mix things up. Um, but, you know, the, the, the play calls themselves have not been, you know, super creative. Um, I don't, you know, wasn't anything that's been shocking or surprising. I think that, you know, they've run their base stuff just in a variety of sets and formations. Basically, what that does is it tells Penn State and future opponents, hey, you got to be ready for everything from us. Auburn's been able to throw it deep out of power sets. They've been able to run out of spread out sets. Uh, they've been able to kind of hit a variety of, of things and, and get the ball to a variety of players. And so I think now is this is the game where uh, game planning and specific tweaks and uh, some plays or, you know, some sets and formations that we might not have seen quite as much in the first couple of games of the season, um, these come into play. Uh, because this is a game where you can look at Penn State and you can you can game plan for the team that you're playing against. You are going to game plan for, okay, here's what their strengths are, here's what their weaknesses, here's what we've got that can attack that, and go with that. Whereas in the first couple of games when you play a very overmatched opponent like uh, Alabama State and like Akron, you know, it's all about you. It's like, all right, here's what we want to get get some work in with, here's what we want to run, and it really doesn't matter what they, what they do because we're physically better than them and we're going to overmatch them. And, Obviously, that's what turned out to be the case. It's not going to be the case this week against Penn State. So I think this is going to be more of what we see from Auburn moving forward, having a expansive, um, multiple offense that can adapt 
and, and kind of tweak things to attack certain defenses, and this will be the first test for it. If Auburn wins this game, who would we look back at and say, okay, those two guys were both the offensive and defensive MVPs? Yeah, I think if Auburn wins this game, I think you're, I think uh, Bonex plays a good game. Um, you know, I think Tang Bigsby running the ball would be, uh, you know, running ball at the high level would be great. Offensive line's got to play well. But I think if you go back and say, you know what, Bonex made good decisions. He didn't put Auburn in danger. Uh, and made some good plays on his own with his arm and his athleticism. That that's the key, guys. I think you know, in a game like this, when these two teams are pretty evenly matched, it kind of a lot of it comes down to which quarterback can step up and play the better game uh, on the defensive side of the ball. You know, I, I think this could be a big game. You know, if you hear about a, a Jacoby McLean or an Owen Papo just going off in this game, stopping the run, keeping a lot of those short passes in front of them sure tackling and then maybe for a guy like Papo getting involved in the pass rush a little bit or creating a turnover um you know I think that I think that would be a great sign for Auburn is that you know if Penn State is allowed uh to if Auburn keeps you know Penn State throwing it deep downfield and they're keeping stuff in front of them side to side you know if they they feel like they have to run the ball at Auburn to have success at winning that's playing right into their strength which is the the, the core of that defense that defensive front and those linebackers that are really good at getting downhill. So, uh, yeah, I think I think if you hear about a really big day for guys like McLean and, and Pat Poe, it'd be it would be a great time for Auburn because um, I mean those guys are going to be very instrumental in keeping everything in front of them, both in the running game and the passing game. What's the team's injury report look like going into this week? I know they were missing some guys on Saturday against Alabama State. Where do things stand for some of those same players going into the big game? Yeah, everybody's day-to-day that was out uh, from last Saturday. That's the official word from, from Brian Harson. It'll be interesting to see what the case is there. Uh, you know, um, the the injuries to Javarius Johnson and, uh, and, and Jalen Simpson did not look to be, uh, you know, just major um, kind of injuries. I mean, you do wonder if Auburn was playing a better team in week two if guys like that would have probably gone out and tried to play. Um, but – you know, I think Auburn is hoping to have most everybody available on Saturday. I wouldn't be surprised if, if a guy or two um, is still out. Sean Chivers is the big one. Uh, everyone is going to be wondering about because uh, he wasn't at the stadium last Saturday, and he's reportedly you know in, in, in health and safety protocols. Um, so that that gives you a different timeline for when he could possibly come back. And it doesn't seem like uh, you know anybody knows for sure what that looks like right now. Um, but if Auburn can't rely on Chivers to go with them on Saturday to, to Penn State, the good news is they've got Jarquez Hunter, and uh, he is playing some really good football right here. Um, you know, coming into this game, so it's a really good sign, I think, uh, because um, you know this is a case where if Tank Bigsby has to be out of the game, Hunter has proven he can be a kind of a similar back, and you won't give that uh, opponent a moment's rest in terms of the style of runner you get out there. So. You know, if Auburn would love to have Shivers back, um, but even if he's not available to go on Saturday, I think the emergence of Hunter in these first two games has been very big for him. Justin, I'm sure it's a big week on the Auburn Observer. Tell everybody what they're missing out on if they're not a subscriber and then how they can become one. Yeah, AuburnObserver.com. This week already we've put up uh, stories on Auburn's pass defense against Penn State's uh, pass offense, a breakdown of that matchup. I think it's not getting quite as much attention as as Auburn's offense against Penn State's own defense, uh, for obvious reasons. We did a 
film room on Monday, kind of breaking down what went wrong for Auburn in the first half against Alabama State and what, what got fixed basically in the third quarter. Um, we'll have more stuff throughout the week. Uh, we'll have a podcast uh, on Thursday previewing the Penn State game uh, with, with some insight from uh, one of my friends who covers Penn State. And, uh, yeah, we will have stuff all throughout the weekend, mailbag on Friday, post-game observations, post-game uh, uh, podcast on Sunday. So be a lot of stuff. You get something pretty much every day of the week um, at about 6 a.m. Central Time if you subscribe to the Auburn Observer. And uh, everything gets emailed to you there. $6 a month or $60 a year. Uh, join up, at, like I said, auburnobserver.com. Justin, I appreciate it, my man. I hope you have a good rest of your week and a safe trip up there to Pennsylvania. Absolutely. Appreciate you guys. That was Justin Ferguson of the Auburn Observer here with us for the Tuesday edition of On the Line. When we come back, we wrap up our number one and finish our SEC West quarterback rankings. Remind you of where Bo Nix falls in the SEC pecking order after two weeks. Wrapping up hour number one of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Big thank you there to Justin Ferguson of the Auburn Observer for joining us in our previous segment. If you missed any of today's show, go and find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. That's how you can get On the Line On Demand. You can be On the Line On Demand. That's how you can find us. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Before we wrap up our number one here, let's take a listen to what's on TV tonight. All right, everybody. The finale of America's Got Talent is on NBC from 7 to 9. Over on Fox at 7, Lego Masters has a new episode with the three remaining teams tasked with building a design over 24 hours. That's a long time to be playing with Legos. I couldn't do it. Some movie selections for tonight. Pop culture classic with 16 Candles on AMC at 7. Comedy horror film with Gremlins on IFC at 6. Back-to-back ESPN 30 for 30s with Once Upon a Time in Queens, Part 1 and Part 2 on ESPN from 7 to 9. Live sports, Major League Baseball is on FS1 at 6.30 p.m. with an AL Central matchup between the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Twins. Lance, I bet you forgot baseball was going on. Yeah, I just (laughs) completely tapped out after the Cubs just have started falling apart. There are college football replays on ESPNU at 4.30. Watch South Carolina's dramatic comeback victory over East Carolina. That got South Carolina to 2-0. And then at 8, Arkansas burst onto the scene with a dominant victory over Texas. You can catch both of those games. South Carolina at 4.30, Arkansas at 8. Both of those on ESPNU. And that's what's on TV tonight. Lance, going back to our quarterback rankings from the SEC West earlier in the show we are comparing Bo Nix to other guys. I have Bo Nix fourth on my list, just behind Will Rogers, and the only reason why he's behind Will Rogers at this point, and this isn't something that I'm docking Bo Nix for, I am impressed legitimately with Will Rogers and his play against what has been better competition than what Bo Nix has faced. With that being said, I think after this Saturday, my projection is that Bo Nix will move up in these rankings, but I'm grading these guys based off of what I have seen through the first two weeks. I got Bo Nix at four, Will Rogers at three. I know you got Bo at three and Will Rogers at four. Yeah, and again, I think it's fair to make the argument that Rogers has has been the third best quarterback up until this point. It's like if Bo Nix performs really poorly this Saturday, he drops like lead in these rankings. Uh, I would put, yeah, I'd put him behind Max Johnson. 
I probably, you think so? Yeah, I probably would. If Max Johnson has a good week. There wouldn't be a lot of differentiation between the two. They both lost to a good football team on the road, right? Yeah. So right now, I think it's fair to have him at four. It's cautious optimism to be able to shoot him up the rankings. I think it's also fair to have him at three. But the guys at the top, one and two, I'm curious how you broke this down. I got Matt Corral at two. I think he's a better quarterback than Bryce Young. But statistically... And then competition-wise, also what we've seen from these two teams, Bryce Young has outperformed Matt Corral at this point. Everything you just said is exactly why I have Matt Corral at two. Yes, exactly. 66.2% completion percentage for Corral, uh, 662 yards, six touchdowns, no interceptions. I mean, those are really good numbers. But again, you look at the competition that Bryce Young has faced on, I feel like that Miami game was a little bit more tough than that Louisville game. And at the end of the day, I think Bryce Young has had to work against a little bit more pressure and he's made a lot of fantastic decisions couldn't agree with you more so our rankings go bryce young matt corral will go 3a 3b will rogers Bo Nix, and then we're saying five through seven max johnson kj jefferson hangs king zach calzada Bo Nix has performed really well up to this point and that's been a large part of what we've talked about here in our number one is breaking down and analyzing his performance through these first two weeks it gives you optimism that he can take that and build upon it in a major road game at Penn State my last question to you here before we get out of here for the end of our number one is on a scale of one to ten ten being the most confident one being the least confident what is your confidence level with Bo Nix having the best performance that he has had against a good team on the road in his career if it was just having a good performance and then just having his best performance overall like against a against a road opponent has he had a good performance against a good team on the road yet? Arkansas in 2019 but other than that no not but they're not a good team of. no but it's it's yeah sure I would say on a scale of one to ten I'll say seven and a half. I'll say I'm pretty confident that if Bo Nix is going to have a good road game, uh, this would be the one. It's not a high bar to clear based off of his previous two years. So I will say eight. I'll say he has his best performance on the road. I don't think it's going to be worse than what we saw against Georgia last year or what we saw against South Carolina last year or what we saw against Florida and LSU two years ago. It's not been a high bar to clear, yet he hasn't been able to clear it yet. And I think with this new offense and with Tank Bigsby and Jarquez Hunter in the backfield, he's going to have the opportunity to clear that bar. And I wouldn't say clear it by a high mark, but at the same time, he's got the opportunity to clear it by a high mark because what he's been doing in the past has not, like you mentioned, been great on the road. I want to talk about the importance of this football game real quick because I go back to 2010. Auburn plays Clemson in week three. What happens? Dramatic comeback victory. That win gives Auburn a lot of confidence. They go on. They beat South Carolina handily the next week, and then Auburn never looked back that season. Of course, they had some tough games. They had some heart palpitation games, of course, but they never looked back. You also look at 2017. Auburn plays Clemson at their place, and they lose. And it was ugly, and the offense looked poor. Of course, Auburn rebounded towards the end of that year, but these early season games kind of give an indication for Auburn football's trajectory over the next several weeks. 
when they played this game, this good game, traditionally in a week three location. You think about 2016, the year before that, you play LSU in week three or week four. Auburn wins it. That was a game where those two teams, they were at a crossroads. One team was going up, one team was going down. It was Les Miles who got fired that week, and it was Auburn that kept ascending and had a good season in 2016. This game, week three, when Auburn plays a good football team, whether it's week two, week three, week four, this pocket of the schedule when Auburn plays this first real challenge it gives you a great indicator of things moving forward for the Tigers I think you can also point back to last season week two against Georgia after seeing the way the offensive line played it's like well this is a good indication as to how it's going to be and typically when Auburn has performed well and when they've risen to the challenge and they've met it well it's time to buy stock in the Tigers if Auburn wins this game it's time to buy stock in this team being a legitimate SEC West contender if they lose well it might be time to maybe have a little bit of concern for this team moving forward that it could be another wishy-washy season. Because you've got some uh, other SEC West teams that we didn't think were going to be so great out there performing, looking specifically at Arkansas. Yeah, I'm scared of the Hogs. Scared of the Hogs. But I don't want to overreact either. But there is a disturbance in the force, and it is coming from Fable. That's it for hour number one of On the Line. We'll be back with hour number two coming up at 3 p.m. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. Hour number two of On the Line. Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. It's been a fun show so far today, Lance. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And again, if you've missed any of it, you can go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We spent the majority of the uh, the, uh, the first hour talking about Bo Nix and his development and whether or not he's going to be able to survive in such a, a difficult environment such as Penn State's and Auburn's going to be taking on them this weekend. Again, go find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We also broke it down with Justin Ferguson of the Auburn Observer. These shows fly by, man. They, they absolutely do. One they get hour in the books. Yeah. One hour in the books, one more hour to go here. And if you want to join us, phone lines are open, 334-321-1390. What thoughts are you having this week about the big game that's looming this weekend for the Auburn Tigers against Penn State? What is on your mind about it? We want to hear from you. Also, if you're on the go, 334-564-1840. That is our text line. Shoot us a text. We'll talk about it on air. Follow ESPN 106.7 on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest going on at the station. Between On the Line, The Drive with Bill Cameron, The Max Roundtable, there's seven hours of local sports talk radio. That's all on ESPN 106.7. Find the website on ESPNAU.com. Starting off hour number two with our Making Headlines segment that we begin every hour number two off of every day. And the big one is the one that broke yesterday after we just got off the air, you know, the four o'clock news dump. 
And I can't believe the coaching carousel has already started. USC fires head coach Clay Hilton. There you go. Yeah, it's it feels like a, a lot of USC fans have been asking for this one for quite some time. Forty six and twenty four overall as a head coach at USC, two and three in his bowl games. And man, people I feel like have been asking for this one since like twenty eighteen. But on the flip side, yes, it was a roller coaster. It was it was very Gus Malzahn esque. But he did win a Rose Bowl, and there were some great seasons sprinkled in there for Clay Helton, including last year. Didn't win their bowl game, but great year last year. Five and one. Yeah, five and four in his first year, then ten and three, eleven and three. Uh, that Rose Bowl that you mentioned, then twenty eighteen, you miss a bowl game, go five and seven, and you're kind of working your way back up to the top. You go eight and five, and then five and one last year. You would like to think that if they had gotten a full schedule, they would have had a nine and three, ten and three type of type of season. Um, but yeah, after uh, seeing the way that they played against Stanford, a team that I don't really have a lot of, f- of faith in, even though they went and beat USC so so badly, uh, USC decided it was time to pull the plug. And uh, but like you mentioned, I'm surprised that it happened this early in the season. Just to write them off this quickly, because there have been previous USC seasons where they started slow with Clay Helton, and then I believe that's the way their Rose Bowl season started. They started with a losing record out the gates, like maybe a two and three, one and two type of start. They move over to Sam Darnold and then they caught fire and then beat Penn State in that barn burner Rose Bowl game that was right before Auburn played Oklahoma in the Sugar Bowl that day. I don't know if you remember that ball game, but it was a great game. There's been the good of Clay Helton and there's certainly been the bad. This decision seems to be premature to me. To make it after week two seems to be a little harsh to write him off this quickly. That's like saying that this program, they got to make a move now or else this program is not going to be able to redeem themselves this year. And I, and I think that's a stretch. Yeah, I agree with you. And look, they've, they're, it's one of the best teams in the entire country, best programs in the, in the entire country, I should say. And they certainly have been missing the mark with Clay Helton on an average basis. That's what I was going to say is while Clay Helton has had his ups and downs, I feel like they're going to try and go for a more consistent guy and and get and get somebody that can get them to those 9 and 10 wins every single year. No questions asked and you may say, "Well, that's really lofty expectations." I think that 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 should be the expectations at a program like USC. And I understand that that should be the expectation 100%. I'm not disagreeing with that and I'm actually kind of shocked that he has lasted this long. You would have thought maybe after the 8-5 and five season in 2019 that that would have been the time that it would have occurred. And you also look at USC's recruiting. They've been outside the top 25 on several occasions across the last couple of recruiting classes. They've had some bad recruiting classes considering their recruiting base is one of the best recruiting bases in all of the country. So that's been bewildering to me. It's looked like it's been on the rocks for a while, but after they went 5-1 and one last season, 5-0 and oh in their own division, of course, last year was an outlier, and I think this is kind of USC saying we don't care about last year, of course, to fire a guy t- two games in, but this season was still salvageable, and I guess the only way that they saw it was salvageable was that they changed leadership and now move on with their associate head coach as the interim. Yeah, started that Rose Bowl season, you were right, 1-3, losing to Alabama, Stanford, and Utah. Sam Darnold comes in and changes things around dramatically that year. I'm curious to see who are some of the names that they actually interview. I know that there are going to be names thrown out there that I don't think are necessarily 
like legitimate, like Urban Meyer is, is a name that a lot of people are talking about. I don't think that's legitimate at the end of the day, but I'm interested to see who they actually interview because, again, I think they're going to be looking for that guy that can bring that consistency to their program. I just don't know if there are a lot of guys out there right now that can do that, that want, would, would want to leave their program the way that they have it right now. It's high risk, high reward, right? There's a lot of rewards for being in Los Angeles. There's a lot of rewards, a lot of benefits for being the head coach at the University of Southern California. But on the flip side, if you fail, and there's been a lot of baggage there at that program, it's like Texas. For some reason, at some point, USC has to look in the mirror, right? It's just like we talked about the offseason with Texas. You thought Tom Herman was a winner. You thought Charlie Strong was a winner. After Mac Brown, it's been Texas rotating coaches year in and year out, and now you get to Sarkeesian, and you see him lose to Arkansas 40-21, to and I wonder if folks in Austin are having flashbacks to their previous coaches. At some point, after all of the years that it's up and down and you think, hey, this is it, we're back, at some point you have to look in the mirror and wonder if it's you and not necessarily all of the different coaches that you're cycling through. And it could be the coaches that you're cycling through, but at some point you have to take responsibility for the coaches that you're bringing into the program, right? Right, yeah. Is there a guy in mind right now that you would say he's he's either a good fit or a perfect fit for USC? Because I'm having a difficult time thinking of somebody that's a perfect fit. There's not somebody out there right now that I would say, yeah, that's that's an absolutely perfect hire right now. They sh- they've been waiting on this guy. Well, let's throw some of the names out there that have been talked about. Of course, Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, his name's been thrown out, and I'm like, that doesn't make sense in my mind for a guy to go all the way across the country not that it wouldn't be a huge step up for Luke Fickle that would be big time right and he has been a head coach at a major institution when he had the interim tag at Ohio State stopped being the head coach at Ohio State ended up being Urban Meyer right after that now he's gone to Cincinnati and his coaching career has taken off but it's weird to me that USC would be considering Luke Fickle like as USC's program has this job not that Luke Fickle's not a good head coach but in the past, would we have seen USC go after a coach that was at Cincinnati? No. Pro Football Focus had some pictures of guys that they were throwing out there. I don't know if they were throwing them out as legitimate candidates, but just trying to spark discussion. Chadwell at Coastal Carolina was thrown out there. Napier at Louisiana Lafayette. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I'd go that far because, once again, this USC job has prestige. Will USC even look to the Group of Five level for a coach? I, I seriously doubt that they would. It's not. It's not often that you see a, a, a program like Auburn pull Brian Harson out from the the entire opposite part of the country. It, it just does not happen often. So now where do you go? Because I've seen jokes out on social social media about Lane Kiffin going back out west. <laughs> right? Has Lane Kiffin done, done enough to earn that? And I also think there's just. I don't think so. First of all, but mainly the reason why I don't think that Lane Kiffin would go back to USC just throwing that out there and I think those folks were just trying to be funny but in all honesty Lane Kiffin's done really well at Ole Miss out the gates and and he's earning my respect as a coach in this league and he did really well at Florida Atlantic a guy that had a hard time finishing things at all of his other head coaching stops had to take some time to rehab with Nick Saban at Alabama right rejuvenates his coaching career and now has been successful at his previous two locations I've got a lot of respect for the guy I think he can coach some football I think he can win some games but I think USC as a program and as an institution has too much pride to go back to a guy that they left on the tarmac I also have seen some jokes out there about Ed Ogeron getting fired and going back to USC that won't happen I just don't see that happening either so again I just there there are not a lot of guys out there right now 
that I can see that I can see fitting and fitting well because you look at the group of five and the three that you mentioned are are, are all just not culture fits. I don't think. Going to behind the controls, we got intern Belichick on the show with us. Belichick, what's on your mind, man? Uh, one of the names that I've seen actually is uh, James Franklin for Penn State. Right, and I've seen that too, and that one makes sense from a program prestige perspective right. James Franklin I was holding off to mention James Franklin I was kind of going through all the other candidates first because I think James Franklin does make sense from understanding expectations from understanding the type of environment that you're at and being able to manage a major program such as Penn State that can translate over to managing a program at USC but I have questions about James Franklin's validity at being able to I, he, he's done a great job at Vanderbilt he did a great job at rebuilding Penn State but I want to see how things go this year for James Franklin. What does his stock look like after this football season concludes? Last year it wasn't good. This year, are we still sold that Penn State's going to finish inside the top 10, inside the top 15? Because after what I saw against Wisconsin and what I believe we will see this Saturday, I think you're looking at probably an 8 or a 9 win Penn State team only because I think a lot of the Big Ten teams this year are down. I don't think this Penn State team's anything special. Yeah. And now it's becoming a trend. I agree with you. Yeah, it, it, I, that's exactly what I was going to say about James Franklin. From a from a prestige standpoint, it's a good hire. But I would like to see him finish out this year and see what the record is and see how they got there. Because you're dealing with a veteran quarterback. You're dealing with experience. You're dealing with a coaching staff that's been here. You're you're get you have all these things around you, and everything should point towards success. But after what we've seen through two weeks, I don't know if they're necessarily going to have as much success as they would have expected coming into this season. Much like Phil Steele saying, this is going to be the most improved team in all of college football heading into the season. I agree with you, and I'm not trying to make a joke saying, oh, Auburn's going to go and, and blow them out by 40. But after this weekend, I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. All right, let's talk about some big dogs that are outside of the college football ranks at this moment. Chris Peterson does not have a job at the moment. Mm hmm Bob Stoops does not have a job at the moment. The question is, does Bob Stoops want a job? And then Urban Meyer. These are names that are legitimately thrown out there right now on articles. I just don't see the Urban Meyer thing working out, right? I think he's going to be in the NFL for for at least two seasons, and USC is going to hire somebody before before he gets out. I just would not. I don't expect Meyer to dip his toes into the NFL ranks and then halfway through the season be like, "Oh, I'm out. I'm going to USC." Like, I just don't. I don't think that's realistic. Now, Stoops and Peterson, like you said, I don't know if Stoops necessarily wants back in the game right now and Peterson I don't know if he necessarily wants back in the game right now but those would not be bad selections I don't feel like it seems too early in the NFL experiment for Urban Meyer like the timing's all wrong right like if he hadn't gone to Jacksonville and he was still working as a TV analyst I'd be like oh this is happening and, and it would be super hot right now off the presses like I, I don't think it would have taken that long to get this thing done but he's he's going into a second week of NFL football. Can you really jump ship that quickly? Right. No, you can't. You can't. You got. You got. He's gonna be. He's gonna be here through the rest of the, the this this season, uh, and I think he'll be here next year because I don't think Jacksonville is gonna lose every single game that they play. I think they're gonna let him have at least a little bit of time to see if he can get the ball rolling. But like you said, yeah, the timing just does not match up. I think Chris Peterson would be an awesome fit at USC, and I think he would win. He went. He won with consistency at Boise State. He did it with a lower echelon of high school football recruit. Imagine what he can do when he gets better talent at a place like USC. 
He also was successful at Washington. Another name that's thrown out there is Mario Cristobal. Right. That's not one that I'm buying either. And my reasoning for that is, once again, I talked about this, high risk, high reward with USC right now. They've had a couple of poor recruiting classes these last couple of years, so you're playing with less talent inside your program than maybe traditionally USC does have. They've been underwhelming with great talent, but recently they have not recruited that great. You then look at Cristobal. Why would you leave what you've built at Oregon, where you're repeatedly getting top 25 recruiting classes, sometimes higher than top 25, sometimes into the top 20, edging into the top 15? You're running your division right now. You have no legitimate contenders in your division. Washington's 0-2, just lost to Montana. Washington State is pirateless as Mike Leach moved down to Mississippi State. They don't have a captain at the, at the top of the ship. They just lost to Utah State. You look at Stanford, sure, I think that they're back on an upwards trajectory after beating USC, but is there real consistency inside the Stanford program at this point? And I think you and I would both agree that there's not. There's no real legitimate contender in his own division at this point. And then you look onto the other side, and the Pac-12 South's just eating each other. Everybody just beats up on each other. The the guy that comes out is eight and five when they make it to the or eight and four when they make it to the conference title game. And Oregon has ran the Pac-12 because of it. And they even had a couple years where they too were beginning to slack off. But Mario Cristobal has righted the ship. He's recruiting well. Why would you leave? USC's a step down from Oregon at this point, I think. At least right now, yeah. And again, you talk about that consistency. That'd be something that USC would want. But again, you're not going to leave Oregon and the consistency that you've got there to go to USC. Because like again, like you mentioned, I feel like USC's in a little bit of a worse spot right now. Very difficult. Very difficult to try and assess this coaching search for USC. You kind of get the feeling that it's either going to be a knock out of the park. Like it's going to be a Bob Stoops or an Urban Meyer or it's going to be a head-scratcher. That's the vibe that I get with the USC job at this point. Still on our Making Headlines segment, spent a lot of time on our first headline because that's the big headline. Let's go to last night's Monday Night Football game, and then we'll put it to rest. Daniel Carlson, Legatron, hits a clutch, booming field goal. 55 yards, that might have been good from 65. Probably not, but it would have been good from 60 for sure. Daniel Carlson drills the field goal that ultimately sends the Raiders to overtime, and then after a crazy overtime period, the Raiders do end up winning in their home stadium with their home fans for the first time in attendance. They defeat the Ravens 33-27 to in our first Monday Night Football. Finally, we get good Monday Night Football because there's been a lot of duds. Yeah, and in an age where the, uh, the NFL kickers have not been very consistent, Daniel Carlson hitting a 55-yarder and just such a clutch moment is refreshing to see, and it's really refreshing to see it as, a, as an Auburn kid. But I will say... Uh, once again, I am wrong about an NFL matchup going in saying, oh, well, Baltimore's defense is going to be able to do just enough to win this game. Not if you give up over 400 yards passing to Derek Carr and you you uh, fumble Lamar Jackson in that overtime period. He finished with more than this than I think, but at one point in the broadcast, the ESPN crew highlighted that Darren Waller had 19 targets, 10 receptions on 19 targets, a career high for Darren Waller. I think that would be a career high for pretty much any receiver or tight end out there 19 targets it was death by a thousand cuts from Derek Carr and the Las Vegas Raiders but it worked I think they've got some holes I think the Ravens have some holes too obviously because they have a lot of injuries at the moment that those guys won't be coming back they're all a bunch of torn ACLs at this point but I think the Raiders have some roster holes that they need to fill but if they if they play like they did last night and get the most out of everybody that they have on the offensive side of the football because they've got a lot of versatile weapons 
they are going to pose some issues from an offensive standpoint defensively still bled yardage still not a great defensive performance from the Raiders but they did just enough and a great field goal from Daniel Carlson making the Auburn family proud let's take a quick break here that's it for our making headline segment when we come back we take a look at the top five most important games of the week three slate in college football you're listening to on the line Rolling through hour number two of the Tuesday edition of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Follow Fox Sports Central Alabama on Facebook to keep up with the latest going on in sports. On the Line, The Drive with Bill Cameron, Fox Sports Central Alabama 98.3 is the home of them. Analysis, news, and more all on Fox Sports Central Alabama on foxsports983.com and on Facebook, that's foxsports983.com. Lance what are the top five most important games in week three this week has been the toughest week to do it last week it was pretty ironed out so was week one this week there's a lot of games that kind of project the same type of importance to me you and I have each prepared a list of five who is fifth on your list I had a really tough time deciding the fifth one through four were were pretty easy for me but I had a really tough time deciding the fifth because there are a few matchups like you said that I feel like are on the same playing field I could have joked around and said Purdue Notre Dame and said that that could be a game that everybody should be watching after seeing the way that uh, Notre Dame played Toledo it's Purdue 2-0 or they 1-1 Purdue is 2-0 Ooh. yep there you go just saying uh Purdue's averaging almost 40 points a game throwing that out there boiler up but that's not the game that i chose at the end of the day i chose michigan state miami as the fifth most important game i omitted this game the reason that i have this game in is because i think it's going to be interesting to see where michigan state is as a contender kenneth walker has been really good over the course of two games for the the spartans so far and miami has not looked like a complete team and if you're going to struggle at home against app state uh, I've, I've, I've got confidence that you're going to struggle at home against Michigan State. So just kind of get a feel for where these two teams are. You talk about not necessarily the most fun matchup, but it, I think it's in terms of importance, it's going to be interesting to see where coastal uh, contender Miami, and I put that in quotations, is and where Michigan State is as a contender in their division. You loved this Miami team. Granted, I love the North Carolina team. Neither of our ACC selections look good right now. I'm curious to see. I've got North Carolina at five. I'll get to that one in a second. I do want to talk about this Michigan State-Miami game because I am very intrigued by it. I'm so happy that I'm at home this Saturday that there's not a home football game kind of because I'm I'm pumped that I get to watch some of these other games and you don't miss this window. This is a game that I'll be keyed into. Michigan State's defense, I think, is much better this year than what we've been looking at the previous two seasons now granted they played Northwestern and they played Youngstown State and I don't think either of those teams are very good at this point Northwestern looking at their only FBS opponent that they've had I don't think Northwestern is primed to have a good season this year they haven't played anyone particularly explosive how does Michigan State's Big Ten defense handle Miami's athletes namely Derek King at quarterback so far the Miami offense has been limited it's been very Gus Malzahn-esque as I pointed out was a major concern for me with Rhett Lashley managing this group against teams like Alabama against Appalachian State I thought there was real potential for them to get upset last week two-point win there for Miami this week are they so fortunate of course they're at home this game 11 a.m. ABC does an early game trip these guys up which team comes out there firing I'll be honest, I think there's more potential 
for Miami to be sleeping in this game than Michigan State considering Michigan State already has to have a heightened awareness a heightened conscience because they have traveled they're already away from home right I feel like because they are away from home they're they're going to be a little bit more used to a different schedule a different maybe it all comes down to preparation right but that's kind of the vibe that I get is maybe if you're on the road maybe that could be a benefit if it's at 11 a.m for you maybe the other team is comfortable that they got to sleep in their own beds it's easier for them to maybe sleepwalk going into it than the team that already has to go to extra preparation because they're already on the road it just comes down to who's more prepared in the small game yeah I agree with you and uh, if we had to pick this game right now, I'm leaning towards Michigan State, but we'll we'll probably pick it later in the week, and it'll be interesting to discuss it. North Carolina, Virginia is the is your number five game, right? Number twenty one, North Carolina hosting a two and zero Virginia team that could throw its hat into the ring in the Coastal Division. Of course, their rival Virginia Tech is two and zero and ranked, I believe, number fifteen in the country at this point. This game at six thirty p.m. ACC Network, at the same time as the Auburn game, actually. This is a measuring stick game for Virginia. Are they good? If I don't expect them to win this game, but I do expect if they hang with North Carolina, they could make some things interesting made for this ACC race when they play Miami, when they play Virginia Tech. Is this Virginia team better than what we saw a year ago, which was not very good? They've looked good through the first two games, but haven't really faced stringent competition at this point. What do they look like in comparison to a team that I do think is good and possesses good athletes? They looked horrible in week one, but maybe that was just maybe that was just a fluke. We'll have to find out. This is where we learned a little bit more about North Carolina as well, though, in terms of them being able to compete in the Coastal. If they lose, they're out. I don't see them I don't see them winning the division if they lose this game. So it's super important for the ACC. It's super important for ACC playoff pictures. The ACC is looking at right now Virginia Tech as as this undefeated champion of the conference. Not saying that they will finish that way or anything, but Clemson, North Carolina and Miami are all walking on eggshells at this point, afraid that one loss knocks them out and then you're at this point where your hopes lie on Virginia Tech to get you into the playoffs, and that's not a place that you want to be at right now. So this game's super important, I think, for the ACC playoff picture, potential loss here for North Carolina. Does some of the same issues in the Virginia Tech game reappear in this game for North Carolina? That's what I'm looking at. Yeah, and I think there's definitely possibility for it because uh, Virginia is no slouch on offense. I mean, Brennan Armstrong, their quarterback, has been pretty good so far uh, throughout the season. My number four game is Arizona State at BYU. It has nothing to do really with BYU. It's just my question of whether or not Arizona State is actually going to be able to contend in that division uh, not a whole lot of competition in the Pac-12, specifically in the South, but in the North, like you said, everybody's just beating up on each other. It's going to be. Uh, I, I'm looking to see if Arizona State is able to go on the road and beat a BYU team that apparently is is not not a slouch after see, uh, seeing them uh, take on B, uh, Utah last week. I actually have this game a spot higher. I think this game holds some particular weight for both teams in this ball game. BYU entered the polls at 23, and you and I were down on the Cougars coming into this year. They beat a ranked Utah team last week. We don't really know how to take that yet because there's not a large sample size of either of those teams. Is Utah just not that good? Were they not as good as we thought that they were being a ranked team? Could we be overrating BYU at this point just because they beat Utah? Maybe Utah wasn't that good, like I just said. So looking at BYU's schedule, Arizona State is the best team left. If they beat Arizona State... You could be looking at a very good season for BYU back-to-back years, and maybe Kalani Satake becomes an interesting coach 
in the coaching carousel at the end of the year to be able to put together back-to-back seasons for BYU and this year it's without Zach Wilson a transcendent college quarterback this time it is in a rebuilding year what people thought was going to be rebuilding year so I put this up to three because I think this holds particular weight for both teams and then talking about Arizona State does the Pac-12 lose another team from playoff contention does the league get eaten again from a school from the outside these mountain teams man they don't play around I'll give you four on my list when we come back from the other side of this break. Thirty minutes left in the Tuesday edition of On the Line. Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central, Alabama. Ranking our top five most important games of the week three college football slate. At five, I had Virginia at number 21, North Carolina. Lance had Michigan State at number 24 or number 23, Miami. One of the two. Right. I think it's, I believe it's 24. Yeah, it's 24. At three, I had Arizona State at BYU. That's 19 Arizona State at 23 BYU. You had that game at four. At four, I have number eight Cincinnati at Indiana. You flipped it, put it at three. So we'll talk about this game together right here. You've got it at three. I've got it at four. This is an 11 a.m. kickoff on ESPN. The only reason why I didn't rank this one above Arizona State BYU, it's not a ranked on ranked matchup, but you could make the argument that these two teams playing in this game, and I'm sure that is your argument, they hold a little bit more weight and it has more playoff implications, I think is what you would say. Right. And that's that's why I'm looking at this uh, Cincinnati Indiana game is playoff implications because I genuinely believe if Cincinnati can go out and win this game and then they can go beat Notre Dame the very next week, which I'm very confident that that Cincinnati can go and do that, uh, then I think they've got a really good shot to make the playoff. They will most likely play another top 25 team in UCF. I believe UCF will be ranked at that point if UCF beats Louisville this weekend. They're going to get to play Tulane uh, on the road later in the season, and that Obviously, that team's no slouch after seeing what they did to Oklahoma. Yeah, there are definitely opportunities on this schedule for Cincinnati to go out there and make a statement at home against SMU, second last game of the season. SMU, their quarterback, Tanner Mordecai, currently leads the FBS in passing touchdowns right now. They are going to have time and time and time again to go out there and prove themselves against decent competition. And this Indiana game, if they go out there and they manhandle Indiana, I'm looking to see the Cincinnati team make a push because some of these other Power 5 conferences like the Pac-12, like the Big 12, they're shooting themselves in the foot right now. Cincinnati goes undefeated. I'm okay with them being in the college football playoff for the reasons that you just said. They've challenged themselves. They finally got people that would schedule them. And, of course, there are two major games that they get to play in non-conference play, Indiana. It's not their fault that Indiana just went from ranked to unranked. They tried. And then on top of that, they get Notre Dame. If you beat Notre Dame, if you're going to give Notre Dame respect all year long, every year, do not lose that same energy when somebody beats them. Give them respect. And that also brings me to point B about this ballgame is, will Cincinnati get the same respect Iowa did for beating Indiana? Because it was enough to jump Iowa up eight or nine spots and get them to the top 10 going into week two will Cincinnati get that respect because they beat Indiana no because a number isn't next to their name I don't think they will at least and I'm like where's the energy right maybe Iowa shouldn't deserve to be where they're at which has been my whole argument throughout this week is don't overreact to anything that's happened in the first two weeks and I think 
folks have overreacted to Iowa at this point. And for me, Cincinnati, a team that competed on the same field with Georgia last year, returns a lot of the same players. That has to be factored into the way that you view this team this year. And they're challenging themselves. If they beat all of these teams, I think they very much so deserve to be in that college football playoff picture. But I got to see how the other chips fall in the other leagues. And I know that's kind of your contingency as well. On the flip side, let's talk about the other team here, Indiana. Can they bounce back or was last season a fluke? You kind of begin to see the trajectory of this Indiana team for this year. I'm not saying Indiana has to win this game for me to view it as bounce back, but they can't get manhandled like they did against Iowa. They got to keep it close. Right, and you look at their upcoming schedule and – Initially, coming into this year, you would have thought that there were some favorable spots on the schedule, but after seeing a couple weeks of college football, I think there are some concerns that have have risen up for the Hoosiers. You go on the road after this game against Cincinnati, and you play Western Kentucky, uh, who has a pretty good offense right now, and ESPN's FPI only gives Indiana a 65% chance to win that game. You look at the uh, the Hilltoppers; they're averaging 450 yards passing per game right now. I mean, they're they're no joke. That's a really good offense, and that's it's going to be interesting on the road. Then you get Penn State on the road, Michigan State at home, Ohio State, Maryland, Michigan. I mean, there's definitely some losable games in here for Indiana. And initially, I would have thought this defense and the coaching would have gotten them over the hump, but now I'm starting to have some questions. Who is your second game? And don't disappoint me. My second game is Alabama at Florida. Excellent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Alabama at Florida. And the reason that I have them lower than uh, Auburn-Penn State is I believe this game is going to be a little bit more lopsided uh, than the the Auburn-Penn State game. ESPN's FPI gives Alabama a 71.4% chance to win this game. Uh, the, the line is currently sitting at 15.5. Without Anthony, Anthony Richardson at quarterback, I don't know if I'm taking Florida to cover in this game. And uh, from what I understand, he is injured. Um, it's going to be. I don't care who's at quarterback. I'm probably not taking him to cover. It's going to be interesting because it is in the swamp. It is a hostile environment. It's going to be fun to see how Bryce Young handles that and should be able to get rush. pressure on him. Right. But at the end of the day, I think this Alabama defense is really, really good. And if Emory Jones is throwing interceptions against South Florida. Uh, I, I don't know if he's going to be able to survive against Alabama. wasn't just South Florida. It was Florida Atlantic, too. Right. Two interceptions against both those teams. Yeah, looking at Florida in this ball game, a question that I have is what direction does the Florida quarterback battle take? At some point, Dan Mullen's going to have to make a decision, right? Or are they just going to run with two quarterbacks all this year? And one of them, by the numbers at this point, hasn't been achieving the level of play that he needs to against competition such as florida atlantic us and usf those are not good defenses one of them is abysmal usf right now is is maybe at the lowest point that we've seen that program ever that that is a team that's going to struggle to win games that that they are they are in some real 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 bad times down there at the university of south florida for their football program so for me the quarterback play like we talked about throughout the summer i didn't know what everybody was getting at with emory jones based off the sample size that we saw i was like we don't know if this guy can throw or not and at this point, he's making mistakes throwing the football. Now, is there still room for improvement? Certainly. But Dan Mullen has moved to throwing Anthony Richardson in there. He's done some good things. I don't know if Anthony Richardson can throw the football, though. We haven't gotten a large sample size of him throwing. You look at his stat lines, he'll run for like 169 yards on like five carries. You know, he's got big playability with his legs, similar to Emory Jones. 
I just want to know if this quarterback room can actually throw the football. And right now, and that's not to say that Anthony Richardson, because he's a freshman, won't ever develop that. But I think the window is closing for Emory Jones for sure because he's been in the program for three or four seasons. Anthony Richardson still has time to develop there. At what point does Dan Mullen make a decision on his on his quarterbacks and put his foot down and actually go with one rather than both? I think you made a really good point there. I've seen some media outlets specifically uh, I can remember Saturday Down South in their podcast, Connor O'Gara saying, yeah, I think Dan Mullen's going to ride this thing out with Emory Jones because he's going to try and make it work. He wants it to work with Emory Jones. My point being, he's like you just said, he's been in the program for three years. If he's two touchdowns to four picks against Florida Atlantic and South Florida, he's not going to make it work. I think right now, like you said, I don't know if Anthony Richardson can throw the football, but he's proven himself as a big play threat. I think it's a it's it's a very young version of Dak Prescott in the making. I think you have to go with Richardson and ride him out for the rest of the season and see if you can develop him because obviously you've missed the mark a little bit on Jones. Now, like you said, is that is that saying that Emory Jones can't statistically improve if he can get back to even touchdowns to intercept a uh, touchdown to interception ratio? No, I think that's definitely still on the table. But through two games against really bad competition, Jones has not been the answer. And again, he's been in the program for so long, I don't understand why he's struggling uh, so much. So yeah, I think Richardson's definitely definitely got the opportunity to step in and be that guy moving forward. I would like to see Florida choose that guy and run, and run with him. Now, if you look at the rest of the schedule for Florida, they don't necessarily, after this ball game, have to do that. They play Tennessee right after. Emory Jones can take you through the rest of the schedule and produce a good football season. It can produce a nine-win season. After this game against Alabama, Florida will host Tennessee. They'll go on the road to Kentucky, which even with Emory Jones at quarterback, I still think I favor this Florida team on the road at Kentucky. They'll host Vanderbilt. They'll go to LSU. They're at home against Georgia. That one's going to be a loss. At South Carolina, home game against Sanford, at Missouri, and then home game against Florida State. Are there really too many games outside of the Georgia game that pass this Alabama game on their schedule that you're uncomfortable with Emory Jones at quarterback? No, but what what my point is is that while, sure, they may be able to survive it, I'm thinking long-term with yeah. Anthony Richardson. Let's see if we can develop him in some of these games where they do have the sh- a shot to win regardless of who is at quarterback. Emory Jones, I'm not saying he's a lost cause, but again, he's been in the program for three years. You've got a very special talent in Richardson. After seeing what he's done over the course of two games, you've got a very special talent in your quarterback room. Get him some love. Then, of course, Alabama on the other side of this as we rank our top five most important games in week three. You mentioned it. How does this offensive line that actually countered some pressure against Mercer, countered pressure against Miami, Bryce Young's been hit a little bit here to start the season. It will be put to the test by one of the best pass rushes in the SEC. Florida can get after the quarterback and get into the backfield. This is the best pass rush they will have faced this season. Now, as we had Jeremy Law on the show yesterday, I don't think intensity at practice is going to be difficult to achieve for Alabama whatsoever. I think Nick Saban, too, just like Jeremy, I think he's got his team right where he wants them. He's got them now. He's got their attention after how they performed against Mercer. I think that was a lesson for them to say, see what happens when you don't prepare right. Now, that was Mercer. What happens if you do this again against Florida? They're going to be locked in. He's going to be on them. He's got the ability to ride them hard at practice now that they performed poorly. Yeah, and look, like you just said, the pass rush I think is going to be able to have some opportunities in this game, but at the end of the day, I think Alabama's going to focus up and and they're going to be ready for this matchup. I think Bryce Young is going to go out there and he's going to play well. 
Uh, you look at their their offensive numbers. They're they're not really running the ball a whole lot, and I don't really think that they need to because of the receivers that they have. Talk about development in long term. You got some really young guys at receiver. Get them some touches in this game. See if you can throw the ball around. Uh, I think you can definitely, if you're Alabama, you can push Florida around a little bit, get that pass protection protection going, start working with Bryce Young, because at the end of the day, I think this is not necessarily a tune-up game for the playoff. I'm not saying that Alabama is going to go undefeated and run the table and win the national championship, but if you have your sights on that, this is a game where you can start to work on some of those things, because I think the talent level is there to where you can just, you're, 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 Florida's outmatched, I feel like. Moving to our most important game of the week three college football slate, Virginia. No, uh, <laughs> number 22, Auburn at number 10, Penn State, 6.30 p.m. ABC. Just wanted to mess with everybody there. This is a big one. We find out if Auburn is a legitimate contender in the SEC West. Likewise, I think we find out just how good this Penn State team is also. I think this game is an opportunity to for for the sec not necessarily to make a statement or just assert dominance over everybody once again but you look at kind of completes dominance though because they've been dominant the first two weeks you look at a game like arkansas texas and it's a team in arkansas that went three and seven last year and was just kind of that bread and butter team it's just that average team right they come in in this game against texas against one of the most talented teams in the country you and i talked about it this offseason the recruiting they've got the guys they've got the talent they go in, Texas does, and they get physically manhandled by a mid-tier SEC team. I think about that running back that carried the Texas safety into the end zone for the last like five, ten yards. Yeah. I'm like, dude, can you not tackle? Right, and that was uh, that was Arkansas second or third string running back. Just want to throw that out there, by the way. But you see a game like that, and you go, oh, the SEC's bread and butter, their mid-tier competition is just as good as some of the top competition in other conferences. I think this is going to this is this game has the opportunity to be a statement for the conference and a statement for Auburn that look, we're not we're not don't throw don't count us out. We still have the talent, we've got the coaching staff, we have the bil- the ability to go out there and outplay you physically. It's something that Brian Harson wants to do. I think he's going to have the opportunity to do it in this game and right now again, I think Auburn wins this game. And it's just an opportunity to make a statement and prove themselves to the rest of the college football world and to the SEC West. If Auburn can't win at Penn State, I have questions for them at LSU. I can't assess Auburn as a legitimate SEC West contender if they can't win on the road at Penn State. And Penn State is a very tough place to play right and Penn State I think is a good football team I don't think they're a very good football team I think they're a good football team and I think they've shown weaknesses already this year that are trending from last year they have continued into this season that Auburn can exploit and I think Auburn can and really honestly my expectation is that Auburn should win this game we talked about that a lot this offseason I think this is a good matchup from Auburn from a schematic standpoint and just looking at the matchups in the trenches I think Auburn's lines are better yeah and again back to the point of just like making a statement and and like just going out there and the sec dominating i think there's a reason this line is only six points when the number two 22 team in the country is heading to the number 10 team in the country in such a hostile environment it says that vegas thinks that the sec's mid-tier is better than some of the best competition some of these other conferences has to offer now it's we've yet to see that happen again because the game's not been played but Auburn's got an opportunity to go out there and again to make a statement and to prove that they are a legitimate contender and if Auburn beats Penn State on the road don't you have confidence that they can beat what we saw at LSU oh yeah what we've seen out of Texas A&M up to that point 
what we've seen out of Mississippi State. Arkansas is going to be a fun game. And of course, that one is on the road and they're going to want to get after Auburn. And I don't think that one's as much as a, of a trap game as maybe we all thought it might have been or what it could have been because now Arkansas has got a number next to their name. And you're going to be focusing on Georgia that previous week. Now, maybe you might be physically beat up coming from that Georgia game, but Arkansas is going to have a number by their name. You're going to get up for that ball game, and it's going to be probably a night game, if not 2.30, as Arkansas is already cultivating interest. You, you look at the next week, Texas A&M-Arkansas is a 2.30 CBS game in week four. So I don't know if that one's as much of the making of a trap game because they're going to get Auburn's attention, but Arkansas is a question mark at this point because I just don't think we know enough about them. I don't think we know enough about Auburn, but I think you have confidence that Auburn can beat LSU and Texas A&M. You get Ole Miss at home. I think you have confidence that you can beat Mississippi State. If you beat Penn State, you have confidence that Auburn can compete in the SEC West and that maybe it is fathomable that Auburn could go 10-2, and that Auburn could be 5-0 and going into the Georgia game, and that you could be looking at a team that I talked about all offseason as a team that's going to surprise people and have an excellent season at the end of the year. And I don't want to throw this out of the realm of possibility. Is it very possible right now? No, not at all. But if Alabama struggles, even in the slightest, against Florida, man, do I have a lot of confidence and excitement that I didn't already have heading into late in the season against Alabama in that Iron Bowl game. Let's take a break here, and when we come back, we wrap up the Tuesday edition of On the Line. That was our top five most important games for the Week 3 slate. If you missed any of it, go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. At three minutes left in the Tuesday edition of the show, then it'll be the drive with Bill Cameron and Dan Pack following us from 4 to 6 p.m. Before we get out of here, let's take a listen to what's on TV tonight. The finale of America's Got Talent is on NBC from 7 to 9. Over on Fox at 7, LEGO Masters has a new episode with the three remaining teams tasked with building a design over a time period of 24 hours. Movie selections for tonight, Pop Culture Classic with 16 Candles on AMC at 7. Comedy Horror Film with Gremlins on IFC at 6. Back-to-back ESPN 30 for 30s with Once Upon a Time in Queens, Part 1 and Part 2 on ESPN from 7 to 9. And live sports, Major League Baseball is on FS1 at 6.30 with an AL Central matchup between the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Twins. So college football replays on ESPNU at 4.30. Go back through this weekend's dramatic comeback victory for South Carolina over East Carolina as Zeb Nolan leads the Gamecocks to 2-0. At 8, Arkansas bursts onto the scene with a dominant victory over rival Texas. And that's what's on TV tonight. Just look at Zeb Nolan. Go. Yeah, the Zeb Nolan, man. It was, uh, it was something that we talked about a little bit on the show. It was like, oh, cool, this grad assistant just transferred to South Carolina. Man, it'd sure be fun if we saw him play quarterback, and about a week later it's like, oh, so he's going to be the starting quarterback. Interesting. And then that Texas-Arkansas game, uh, it's, the, it's the most viewed college football game so far this season. Had, it held an average of 3.4 million viewers. Of course, intern Belichick hit us up with some news during the break. Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy has emerged as a candidate for the USC 
head coaching position. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know enough about this guy to to give a formal opinion other than I know that the Chiefs offense has been fantastic for the past couple of years. So yeah, I believe you have a little bit more information on him. I believe he played at Colorado. I believe he was a solid player there. So uh, go ahead and take it away. Now you look at the college football history for Eric Bieniemy. He was third in Heisman voting back in the 90s as a running back at Colorado. He's been a coach at the college level. He was a running backs coach at Colorado back in the early 2000s, running backs coach at UCLA also in the early 2000s, and then he made the move to the NFL in 2006. He was the OC at Colorado back in 2011-2012, and then he made his move back to the NFL yet again with the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, of course, I'm leaving out some stops in there with the Minnesota Vikings and whatnot, but just kind of hitting the highlights of his career resume. And uh, he was the running backs coach for the Kansas City Chiefs from 2013 to 2017, and then Coach Reed moves him up to 2018 to the present as offensive coordinator. Belichick, you got something? Yeah, Mark just wanted. Mark just called in and uh, – told me that he wanted to remind you that the Atlanta Braves are also on playing the Rockies tonight in a big in a big uh playoff contention that is true game. starting a new series with the Colorado Rockies that's a big one appreciate it Mark thanks for the call in yeah and it's something that we've not we've not touched on the Braves recently but they were able to uh I believe they won the series against the Nationals and they did and about, the Marlins just about 20 games left I mean they've got a four and a half game lead and I think they're going to be able to hold on to it things definitely trended in a negative direction for the Phillies and the Mets they had an opportunity to close the gap, and now the Braves, four-and-a-half game lead, as you mentioned. They need to hold on to it. Now this series moves to home. It's no longer out in the mile high in Denver. It's back in Atlanta. That's it for another edition of On the Line. We'll be back with you tomorrow.